Hello, and thank you for joining us on Dark FM Radio. We are currently... On the air. Standards are coming thick and fast now. Here's the Bridge City Jazz Men's version of another favorite, Jada. Hail you ghouls and goblins out there. You've tuned into Dark FM Radio. As always, I'm your host, James Blackbone. If you've listened in before, then you know what we do. But if you're new to the show, first of all, welcome. Here at Dark FM Radio, we tell stories. And not just any stories. First-hand accounts of unexplainable and creepy experiences. Anonymous emails and letters from regular people who claim to have witnessed or experienced something from either the supernatural or just something that just quite can't be explained. So, sit back, relax, turn out the lights, and join us. Our first story tonight is very strange. Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night and not been able to move, no matter how hard you tried? Well, sometimes it's explainable, and sometimes it's not. We'll call this first story... Sleep Possession. Everybody's heard of sleep paralysis, the inability to move during the REM phase of dreaming. Many people claim they're fully conscious during their sleep paralysis experience, and that sightings of dark entities or their inability to move are real, not a mind-trick phase between slumber and awareness. Some believe it's a spiritual or demonic force holding them down to the bed, paralyzing them while they helplessly lie awake. Bizarre things come to me in the dream realm. If there's an acknowledged energy in a household, I usually find out after spending a night there. I don't believe I experience sleep paralysis. It's an ability to see what's genuinely around, though commonly accepted as sleep paralysis. Google suggests what I experience is normal, but I'm here to tell you why it's not. Besides, our society likes to separate science from spirituality, convincing the public that they are total opposites. I firmly believe they are the same and that scientists could explain spiritual happenings through alternative studies if we cared to bring the two together. Anyway, I've seen a shadow man in my dreams since I was a little girl. If you investigate it, this sighting is widespread among sleep paralysis experiences. However, I only ever see him in a home with an intense history behind it. For example... My aunt lived in a house, part of the Underground Railroad. Her home had secret doors, hidden tunnels, entrances, and in the basement. 
and you could shift sections of the ceiling to climb into the attic. The Historic Society passed a law to protect these homes and preserve their significant history. So my aunt's house looked exactly how it did when its design purposes were to free and hide enslaved people. Every night I slept there, I would see things. I would see a dark silhouette of a man standing in the corner of my room, and my little cousin would see him in broad daylight, something I have yet to experience. Almost every night I slept at my aunt's, I'd wake up in bed paralyzed and petrified as this thing would stalk me from across the room. While sleeping in my home, which was newer and never had a death occur inside of it, I slept like a baby, never experiencing sleep paralysis once. These details were too specific to be written off as a coincidence. Why would I constantly see things in a house that was 200 years old, but nowhere else? It didn't seem as uncomplicated to say my REM sleep was playing tricks on me. When I was 11, I had a close friend named Annie who lived in an old Victorian house. Mind you, I'm from Massachusetts, one of the country's oldest and most historic states. It was common for people to reside in homes dating back to the early 1900s or late 1800s. Sure, people would renovate the interior for safety and style, but the foundations would remain the same. There are neighborhoods towns even full of historical residences. My best friend at the time lived in a traditional Victorian home built in 1910, and everything about it was authentic to its original form. Even some of their furniture belonged to the original owners. Whenever her mom was out and we were alone, we'd remain glued by the hip, scared to be alone in the house. We'd take bathroom trips together, grab food from the kitchen together, everything. We always felt that something was watching us and would sense objects moving from the corner of our eyes, even when we were the only ones at home, and we never felt entirely safe. One night her elderly dog peed on her bed, so we made a nest on her bedroom floor as a temporary sleeping arrangement. Hours after we'd fallen asleep, I randomly woke up and sat forward. I remember mindlessly staring at Annie for a long time as she slept beside me. It felt like I had no control over my actions, but I was simultaneously aware of what I was doing. After watching Annie sleep, I steadily arose to my feet and headed out the door, which was already open, though we always fell asleep with it closed. I wasn't dreaming because I was hyper-aware, but I wasn't acting like myself. I walked down her dark hallway without a worry in the world, even though darkness was my greatest fear at the time. I walked across her entire house until I reached a walk-in closet. Annie's mom had converted into a miniature library. It was about seven feet long and five feet wide, not very spacious, and resided in a part of the house Annie and I found the creepiest. I opened the closet door, shut it behind me, then sat in the fetal position facing the back corner of the wall. As the sun started to peer into the window, I woke in that position not having moved once, and instantly freaked out. I remembered casually going into that room but was terrified to be alone. My normal, fearful self had returned. I ran into Annie's room and told her I'd just woken up in the small library. You sleepwalked? She shouted, startled by my story. No, I, I wasn't dreaming. I remember doing it, but I couldn't stop myself. I think it was possession. I told Annie, goosebumps covering my body at the thought of what happened. 
I also mentioned how her bedroom door was already open when I walked out, though we locked it before bed. I later told my mother about the bizarre occurrence, but Annie didn't dare tell hers. Her mother was constantly irritated by our fear of the house. You two are so dramatic, you have to go to the bathroom together, she would say to us regularly. And though I lived in a crowded apartment with three siblings, Annie started to sleep over with me as much as her mom would allow, also terrified to get possessed in her own home. The moral of the story is not all sleep paralysis is a dream, and not all sleepwalking is normal. If we combine science and spirituality into one, we could further dig into the root cause of these happenings and what makes certain people susceptible. I'm getting chills as I write this. I have to agree, I do believe that there could be some kind of connection between spirituality and science, but until people really dig into this, we may never know. Our next story tonight is a creepy one. It's a good reminder that sometimes people can see things that maybe we can't. Now, whether they're really there or not, that's the question. We'll call this one Imaginary Friend. I'm a single mother to my daughter, Tess, who had a baby at 16. Yes, I'm a very young grandmother. Helping Tess with her baby has not been easy for anyone involved. She's juggling school and parenting with my physical, emotional, and financial support. Neither of us gets much sleep, as you can imagine, and funds were already low before her pregnancy. When I felt life hit rock bottom, it only got worse, but in the last way that one would expect. When my granddaughter Molly turned two years old, she developed impressive verbal skills. Molly knew how to say, please, thank you, I'm hungry, I'm tired, and ask where we were going. Can we watch a movie? How big is 100? Things like that. She's pretty intelligent. English was the only language spoken around her, so when we heard her speaking fluent Spanish, out of nowhere, there was a rise of concern. I asked my daughter how Molly speaks Spanish better than English, and my daughter didn't have the slightest clue. Molly didn't watch Spanish shows or go to daycare yet, so we couldn't understand how she absorbed it. The strangest part of all is it wasn't the Spanish itself. It was that she would only speak to her imaginary friend, and every time she talked to her imaginary friend, she would look up at the ceiling. It was very uncomfortable for my daughter and me to watch. One night while my daughter and I were cooking dinner together, we realized Molly was no longer in the kitchen. We last saw her at the kitchen table drawing. Surely we would have heard her struggle to get down from her chair and leave the room. After looking all over the house for her, we started to panic. How is this possible? How could this toddler disappear from home? Before calling the police, my daughter checked the lower kitchen cabinets, the only area left unsearched. There's no way she's in a cabinet, I said, holding my phone and ready to dial 911. To my surprise, I was wrong. 
Our cabinets didn't have dividing walls between them. If you opened one of them and poked your head in, you could see behind every other cabinet door like a small hallway. Molly was sitting in the cabinets, giggling and whispering Spanish to her imaginary friend. We couldn't hear her quiet voice while cooking because we also had the radio playing. But when we looked inside to see what she was doing, it was like she was in a trance, unable to hear or see us next to her. Suddenly Molly looked around the cabinet area, confused, and asked her imaginary friend a question in English. Where are you? Where's who, Molly? Tess asked her daughter. My friend, she pouted. What does your friend look like? I asked. Tall, he's very tall, she responded, sending shivers through our veins. After that, there was a week of calmness. Molly stopped talking to her imaginary friend as if he had left and never returned. But once that peaceful week ended, a new level of fuckery arrived. And it was far more worrying than the granddaughter suddenly speaking fluent Spanish. I watched a movie in the living room while the girls slept upstairs in their shared bedroom. I heard a muffled sound echoing above me but decided to ignore it. Then I realized what it was. My daughter was in the stairway crying. Tess, are you okay? I asked her after pausing my movie. The weeping continued. So I asked again. There was still no response and her crying grew more intense. I then began to walk to the stairway to console her. But once I reached the turning point and could see the top half of the staircase, the crying simultaneously stopped. As I noticed she was no longer there. Before looking up the stairs, I could have sworn she was right there. Her cries sounded so close. Confused, I walked to their bedroom and cracked open the door. She was lying in bed with Molly, both seemingly asleep. Tess, I whispered. Hmm? She moaned. Were you just crying on the staircase? I asked her. Mom, no, I was sleeping, she said rumpily. And that confirmed it. I just heard what sounded exactly like my daughter crying on the stairs, her sobs echoing across the house as clear as day, except she was sleeping in bed the entire time. The following morning I told her what had happened over breakfast. She was alarmed to say the least and said she thought she heard me crying later that night after I checked on her, but she heard it coming from the living room. After seeing I wasn't downstairs, she got scared and ran back to her bedroom. Something was playing mind tricks on us, convincing us that the other was crying. About four days later, we three girls watched a movie together after dinner. During this time, somebody started aggressively knocking on the front door. I asked my daughter if she was expecting anyone, to which she shook her head no, so I got up to see who was eagerly trying to reach us. Nobody was there. I figured it was neighborhood kids pranking us, so I locked the door and began walking back to the living room as if nothing happened. The loud knocking returned as I passed the basement, but it wasn't coming from the front door anymore. Stunned by what I thought was happening, I slowly turned around to look at the basement door. It shook with every hard knock as I stood before it. I stared at it for a moment, paralyzed by fear until my survival instincts kicked in. I ran to the living room and demanded that the girls get up. Without questioning, Tess threw Bella over her shoulder, and we ran out the door in our socks. 
We spent that night at my brother's house, a town over, while I had police search the home for an intruder. There were no signs of anyone being in the house, besides us girls. We stayed in that house for an additional two months before biting the bullet and moving out. During those last two months, my daughter and I continued to hear one another speaking, similar to the staircase incident. I heard Tess yell out for my help when she was at home, and she heard me call her name from the basement while I was at work. Sleeping at night became difficult, and we all slept in the same room during those final months. By sleeping together, we could easily determine whether the voices we heard were authentic or not, except we never heard them while we were together, only when we were alone and vulnerable. I'm happy to say that those imitations of our voices went away after we moved out. Part of me wants to believe that the house is haunted, but there was never any weird activity throughout the years we lived there until Molly became a toddler. Was an ill-intended spirit passing through? Did something latch on to either of us three girls and follow us home? I'm clueless about it all because I've never believed in ghosts or paranormal activity, so the strange happenings we endured are challenging for me to wrap my brain around. Thank you for reading my story. I hope this makes it into your remarkable series. If you find it fitting, I'm eager to see what the public says about it. May God be with you all. Well now, sometimes, no matter how much sense we want something to make, it's just unexplainable and there's nothing we can do about that. Our final story tonight is a reminder that we really need to be grateful for what we have while we have it, because sometimes things can vanish in a flash. We'll call this one Into Thin Air. Throughout my entire life, I've never known what it feels like to be lonely. I have an identical twin brother, Jason, and he and I have been best friends since birth. We played the same sport, shared the same humor, and even had the same friends. Believe it or not, I can't recall ever arguing with him. Jason and I were close for the first 30 years of our lives, so when he went missing, you can imagine the pain it brought upon my life. It was the week of our 30th birthday. Jason drove to where I lived in New Mexico. Not a far trek from where we grew up in Arizona. But I was new to the state, and he had yet to see my place. He spent a week with me at the house, and we devoted our time to doing tourist things like exploring Santa Fe, stargazing in the desert, and hitting the state's most popular hikes. He told me that alongside Arizona, New Mexico has the most UFO sightings and unexplainable disappearances. We were both really into uh, extraterrestrial theories, so I didn't think anything of it at the time. It was usual for us to discuss this kind of thing. With that being said, ever since the day Jason disappeared, I can't help but compare his tragedy to alleged alien abductions. He quite literally vanished, almost right in front of my eyes. I can't blame myself for the incident, but I wish I had kept my eyes on him. If I hadn't looked away, I would at least know what happened. 
the what-ifs have been destroying me, though I suppose it's a natural part of the grieving process. His disappearance took place on the last night of his stay. We were smoking a cigarette on the porch when he decided to show me the stunts his new car does when he locks and unlocks the doors. I remained seated by the front door while Jason crossed the parking lot. He wasn't far, maybe 25 feet from where I sat. He clicked the unlock button and laughed like a little kid as the mirrors extended, then locked it back up to show me how they inverted. I briefly turned my attention to the table beside me so I could set my drink down and playfully clap for his car's performance. And as I looked back in his direction, he was gone. Both him and his car. No noise indicated that he'd driven away. And even if there was, it wasn't physically possible for him and his vehicle to vanish within two seconds that it took me to set my drink down. I couldn't believe my eyes, they were gone, and I refused to accept it. Even convincing myself at one point that I was dreaming and slapping myself to try to wake up from this dreadful nightmare, but I never woke up. Jason hasn't reappeared since. We went on the missing persons list with posters, hung all over the surrounding area and in our hometown. Jason's car information was provided on the signs too, but there's been no luck finding either and it's been six years since the incident. Can you think of any logical explanation for what might have happened? You can't. My family thinks I'm crazy for even considering an alien abduction, nor do they believe he disappeared into thin air as I say he did. I'm at a significant loss, and pray that wherever Jason is, if he's alive, he's not suffering. Next month, we'd be turning 36 together. Wow. Remember to hold your loved ones tight because one minute they could be right in front of you and the next they could be gone forever. Thank you for listening to Dark FM Radio. Credit these stories to Unexplainable Happenings, Chilling True Stories by Tom Lyons and Autumn Barnes. You can find those on Kindle. Be sure to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It truly does help us. Thank you again for tuning into Dark FM Radio. Good night.